Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Yes, we are recording once again. And um, we're in July already. How did that happen? Unbelievable. Right? How fast the year's getting. And the traffic has been like August quality out there. I can tell you that based on my drives around town. But I, you know how it is. Well, it used to be that going east-west was the nightmare. But if you were just heading north or south, you were fine. I don't think that's true anymore based on what I've been seeing. It's just one, one big parking lot. Yeah, great. I mean, we'll be driving home from Sag Harbor Village today, and we live in the hamlet of Springs in East Hampton, and we're anticipating even leaving as early as we can, it taking a minimum of 45 minutes, where traditionally it's like, there are days if I'm really driving fast, I can get to Sag Harbor in 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Maybe you need to get a boat and just like go out of Sag Harbor and come in like Three Mile Harbor. There you go. Company boat. Does, does Adam have some free time today? To, um, uh, come- yeah, we can do that. We'll come get you. He's done that before. Actually, there was a couple years ago. I always wanted to commute by boat and he had to take the boat in to get do something anyways into Sag Harbor. So I think, um, yeah, so I jumped on the boat and he gave me a ride and dropped me off at Long Wharf and I was able to walk to work. It was the ultimate and living large on a tiny boat. Hey, flying cars are coming. When flying cars arrive, it's going to be a whole different thing. Yeah, no, they're, they're experimenting with flying cars now. Yeah. Which scares me now. I used to be excited at the idea, but yeah. but flying cars are still going to have to follow the road, so you're still going to just be in a flying car sitting behind somebody else's flying car. <laughs> Do you really think flying cars are cars are going to follow the roads? I don't think. So. You want flying cars going over your house? Remember being a kid and you saw those jetpack films? Well, yeah, we were promised. They promised us jetpacks, and that where's my jet? Right. I want like flying cars and jetpacks. You know, we were way overdue on this. The thing that also used to really freak me out was the idea of. Remember, there was also the telephone where you could see each other. In the old days, it was like this little round thing that was sit on your desk, and I was always so freaked out because it's like, what if I'm just coming out of the bathtub and somebody calls and they're gonna see me? I remember being really worried about stuff like that. That and quicksand when I was. Saying. And now we have FaceTime and Zoom calls. So I think we're kind of there. <laughs> I know. And we have Jeffrey Tubin <laughs> to show you what you need to watch out for when you're on that kind of a thing. So, so we're all completely well covered today, though, because, you know. <laughs> yeah, no. All I wanted, man, was a hoverboard, you know? Yeah. I mean, that was all I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> hoverboards anyway so i'm going to introduce us all before um, we get too much further into this so um, bill sutton is back at the controls today hey bill hey annette i'm bill sutton i'm the managing editor of the express news group and brendan o'reilly is um, pacing around his room hi brendan how are you hi i'm brendan i'm the features editor and we have Catherine manu with us also known as georgie how are you doing georgie i'm good i'm Catherine manu and i'm the co-publisher of the express news group and Joseph Shaw's with us again, or Joe. Yeah, let's 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 go, Joe. We're all friends. Joe Shaw, executive editor of the Express News Group. Yeah, you're not in trouble. I guess when you were in trouble, people called you Joseph. Was that right? Yeah, this is a this was a jo- Joseph is not uh, people who don't know me call me Joseph. 
Only two people in the world have ever been allowed to call me Joey. And that was my mom, my late mom, and the late Vince Canusio. Uh, because he insisted on calling me Joey. And so I just decided to let him do it because yeah. he, did it, he did it to get under my skin and I refused to let it. And for those who don't know, Vince Canusio was this uh, supervisor of Southampton Town a number of years ago. He was, and we had a very complicated <laughs> relationship. I, I, I really did, really did have great fondness for the man, though. Good guy. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Joey Shaw. And uh... <laughs> no, no, I'm going to draw the line there. And my name is Annette Hinkle, also known as Nettie as a child. And I am the arts living editor of the Express News Group. So um, today we thought, you know what, with July here and all sorts of things going on, we thought it would be fun to do sort of a grab bag of topics. So um, we're each going to bring up something that's been in the news recently, and we'll have a, a quick conversation about that. And that's how we're going to play this. So um, shall I start this game? Sure. All right. Um, so I thought it would be interesting to talk about parking on Long Wharf and Sac Harbor. Uh, this has been one of those things that's been debated for forever. And they, um, earlier this spring, early in the spring, they, they set up parking, paid parking on Long Wharf and Sac Harbor. And um, they were initially going to have parking all up and up and down Main Street, but it, uh, um, just to sort of ease everybody into it, because there was a lot of um, not unhappy people about that idea of paid parking they decided to institute it just at Long Wharf in Sac Harbor. And um, it's all done by an app system. And um, you get it, the app on your phone and then you're able to pay. Um, I think, is it is it two hours is free, Georgie? Is that how it works? Um, so those who park between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. are limited to a three hour stay. And those who park after 6 p.m. have the option of staying up to five hours. Um, so the first hour is free. Uh, in the during those evening periods and then each additional hour costs four dollars four dollars right so I was kind of impressed so I was just curious how this was working out I know that there's there's been a lot of complaints about because of the, the spotty wi-fi that some people are having trouble downloading the app um, the police in Sag Harbor have been a little reluctant to really enforce it because of the fact that downloading the app has been difficult. There's probably also an age challenge for some folks to get this on their phone. But I was pretty impressed because it looked like um, they have raised about um, $12,000 in parking fees already. And I don't know, do we think that that, what do we think about those numbers? And do we feel like, I, I, I thought those were pretty impressive numbers given the time um, and the limited the limited spaces that this is being applied to. I mean, I have to say, like paid parking isn't something that's unusual. It's something that you see in a lot of popular destinations, um, not just in this country but around the world. Um, and so, um, I think, especially since it's limited to Long Wharf, um, I, I think it's a good idea. Sac Harbor Village is in dire need. <laughs> of all of the revenue it can get. Um, it is not in the most robust financial shape and this revenue would theoretically be earmarked towards things like sidewalk repair, um, you know, and some of these infrastructure costs that, you know, that can be really expensive. Um, they, they, there was discussion about the Park Mobile app being difficult to download because of Wi-Fi on the wharf. Um, I had no problem downloading the Park Mobile app myself when I did it. Um, so, you know, I, I appreciate that Wi-Fi service can be spotty in the summer, but it wasn't an issue for me. Um, Park Mobile is also being used in East Hampton Village, which has um, 
It's Rue de Chien parking lot is also now paid parking in East Hampton Village. The first two hours are free. Um, and then after the third hour, you have to pay. Um, and it, it was a fairly easy system to use. Again, there's other places to park if you don't want to pay for parking. Though. Have we heard anything about how it's going in East Hampton? I wonder what kind of money they're bringing in and if they've had a lot of complaints or issues. Anybody know? I'm not sure, actually. Um, I would have to check in on that. Um, I'm not sure what the success rate is. Every time I've gone into the Rue de Chien lot, I've been able, which is where the paid parking in East Hampton Village is. It's the lot right behind Main Street and Newtown Lane. I've been able to find parking. Um, and it, but it's, but it's also, it's not empty. It's being used. Um, and again, I think that people are accustomed to paying, like, especially people coming from New York City, and you know other metropolitan areas, this isn't like an unusual thing to pay for parking. And this is like a, a test case to have it just on Long Wharf, right? I mean, do we do we get the feeling that since there haven't been a lot of issues, that the uh, the village board may consider next year extending it to other areas like had been originally proposed? Well, it is a mixed reaction from what you know, Steve Coates did a whole story on this for last week's issue of the Express. And the reaction is mixed. Again, you know, um, the village police chief, AJ McGuire is saying that, you know, some people are having trouble downloading the app. Um, but again, on the other side of it, you're seeing these, this increase in revenues. I think it'll really depend on where the new Sag Harbor Village administration lands on it. Um, we have a new mayor in Sag Harbor, and I believe Joe might have talked to him this week about some of this. Yeah, I can sort of preview uh, what I was going to say, uh, which will be my topic. Uh, the new mayor, Jim LaRocca, does not sound like he's much of a fan of the paid parking plan. And so that may come into play uh, as well as, uh, you know, for its future. It may be short life, we'll see. Um, the two other points I would wanna make about it is, number one is it's interesting that, that it's getting that kind of revenue uh, so early, but that revenue is earmarked as Georgie pointed out for infrastructure pro projects in the village. And I find it intriguing that one of the things it's not earmarked for is developing more parking. Um, which I think might be something that the village should think about. I don't know how you use the money to create more parking, uh, but, but it feels like that should be one thing. And the second thing is, I've always thought from the beginning that, that Sag Harbor's paid parking proposal in particular didn't have the foundation laid that it needed, which I think you can use a paid parking plan to nudge people to go in certain areas to save money and you can use it to sort of manage your parking in your village overall. And I don't think the village really did the necessary groundwork to, to do that first. And that's, so when they ended up implementing it, they ended up just using it on Long Wharf, which I think made sense. I think that's a good idea to start with Long Wharf and try it out there. But I think that there's a whole layer that was missed here with this parking app where you could have used it to make spaces on Main Street higher cost, except for local residents. Or there, there are things you can do to use that app to change people's behavior with traffic and parking. And I feel like that was a missed opportunity, just my opinion. I think it'll be interesting. They're gonna to have to maybe look and see how often are the spaces turning over? Because beyond just the revenue, the other important thing is to try to get people to move, um, you know, in and out. And I think that that's the thing that's going to be, I don't know, if, I guess they'll have ways of measuring that. 
because they really want the turnover. That's the other thing to know that you're getting new people in and, you know, into the village to shop. They're moving out. More cars are coming in. So I wonder if there's a way to measure all of that and who's using the spaces and how they're turning over. Yeah, I mean, you'd need to look at all of the village because there's a the myriad of um, parking spaces in terms of time. You know, you've got your two hour spaces um, that, you know, are dotted along Main Street and Bay Street for the most part, a few, you know, quick like 30 minute spaces um, in key locations on Main Street. And then you've got the paid parking on Long Wharf and then the spaces just outside of downtown that, you know, don't have a time limit to them. Um, I know in the summer, that's, you know, certainly where, you know, the staff at the Express, we park, you know, pretty far down on Bay Street near the Yacht Club. Honestly, it's like a city block or two walk to the Express office. It's really pretty. It's right on the water. Um, so you, I think, need to look at all of that in a parking study, which I know the previous administration had talked about doing a comprehensive parking and traffic study. I don't know if Jim spoke with you, Joe, about that um, and if that's something he's interested in pursuing. Now we should maybe transition then to your topic, Joe, which is? Yeah, I had a, I had a sit down with the new Psych Harbor mayor, uh, Jim LaRocca, and that Q&A appeared in the paper this past week. And it was an interesting conversation. I think, you know, he, he ousted Mayor Kathleen Mulcahy. And I was surprised in our conversation at how much the election remains uh, a topic of concern for him. Uh, he very clearly took uh, a lot of what happened in the campaign personally. And getting past the, the uh, back and forth between the two camps isn't going to be the easiest thing in the world. And as I pointed out to him, he's got to work with um, two board members, uh, Mr. Plum and Mr. Korish, who were very much on the other side in this election. And it hasn't been an easy transition from the sound of it. Uh, there's almost no contact between those officials. That's not a foundation for moving forward in a positive way as a board. And I, and I think it's worrisome. Um, but uh, uh, other than that, I think he said some interesting things. I think he's optimistic about Bay Street that he thinks, you know, he has always had a different position on Bay Street that their proposal to build on the waterfront is not his preference. And he says he's having high level conversations with Bay Street folks. And I made the point, does that mean friends of Bay Street folks? No, it's just Bay Street folks, which those are really two different things at this point. Um, but I, I think he's hoping to nudge that um, in, in a positive direction. And the other thing I found really intriguing was the conversation about how the development along the waterfront may change. He, he noted that he joined the board um, under uh, um, Sandra Schroeder, the former mayor, in part because he was interested in how the waterfront would develop and he wanted to take more of an active role on the village board. He was a member of the planning board, I believe. Um, and he said, by the way, as a little aside, when he joined the planning board, he thought it was more like the planning commission looking ahead and making plans for the village. He said, I found out it was really just processing applications, which that's what a planning board does. Um, so he jumped to the village board when he had the chance in part because he was interested in the waterfront development. And he doesn't want to scrap what's been done so far under Mayor Mulcahy, but he does sound like he wants to really seriously 
reconsider uh, the way they're thinking of redoing the zoning on the waterfront. He doesn't like uh, the proposal form-based design. He's not a big fan of, of the form-based design because it is such a subjective thing. Um, he also thinks that the area that's being studied um, by the, the overlay needs to be bigger and needs to include more properties that were excluded. And he said, you know, it didn't really make any sense, make, make any sense uh, to exclude some of the properties that were excluded. So um, it's going to be an interesting six months. He was sworn in on Tuesday. You know, it'll be interesting to see how Mayor LaRocca manages his way through having to deal with some uh, colleagues on the village board where there's still some open hostility uh, left over from that election. And Georgie, we tied, Georgie and Bill, we, and, and Brenda, we, we talked about editorially, actually all of us, we're all on the editorial board. Uh, we, we talked about how the toll these elections, these village elections and the tone of them may take. And I think you're gonna see that in Sag Harbor Village. It's, it's gonna be a tough path forward, I think, for the mayor. So, Bill, do you want to jump in with your uh, chosen topic for the week? Sure. I wanted to talk about a, a story that Mike Wright wrote last week about um, COVID vaccination rates in Southampton and East Hampton on, on the on the South Fork. And I think it was um, some exciting numbers and, and some puzzling numbers as well when we when we look at all of all of the East End. Um, in Southampton and East Hampton towns, according to the uh, so New York State Department of Health had had uh, the week before uh, put up numbers by zip code showing how many people had gotten at least one vaccination and how many people were fully vaccinated. And it showed that in Southampton and East Hampton towns, um, nearly 80% of adults were fully vaccinated. Um, and, and I thought it was really interesting. There were a number of smaller hamlets. Wayne Scott, Watermill, Bridgehampton, and Sagaponic Village, where um, more than 99% of people were fully vaccinated. And, and I'm, I'm thinking there's got to be one or two outliers there, or they would have said 100%, but they said more than, than 99%. Hang on. Sorry, Shotzi needed to weigh in on that. Um, uh, so so I, I, I thought that, that those numbers were... Um, were, were really exciting, but we had conversations with some people on further west and on the North Fork, and the numbers like in, in Riverhead were were still down like around 60%. Um, and there were some areas that were that were a lot lower. And, and I'm curious as to why, why people think that is. Um, I think the high numbers in Southampton and East Hampton, um, a lot of local lawmakers attributed to to the outreach that, that was done through Ola and Southampton, um, Sony Brook Southampton Hospital to, and to pull out in East Hampton town um, to create these little pods to make sure that underserved communities and people in Montauk who, who didn't have an opportunity to come west were, were served um, and, and all that. And I think that may account for some of the higher numbers. I'm just curious about the lower numbers and to the, to the north and west. No, my thinking is like a lot of the pockets that were really, really highly vaccinated are also like older populations. And it seems like from what I'm hearing, the younger people are the ones not getting vaccinated. And maybe in general, Riverhead also is, is made up of a lot of um, 
younger folks than what you would get out this far. I, I think it'll and more underserved folks too. A lot of Latinx people in in, in Riverhead, maybe more so than than on the South Fork. And how do we compare to the national numbers? Like, what's the um, what do we? Well, I, I don't know national, but statewide is around seventy percent or seventy-two percent of adults have received at least one um, one one shot. Sixty-four have have been fully vaccinated. So that's quite a, a, a difference um, statewide. We're, we're certainly ahead of the curve um, in Southampton and, and East Hampton towns. It's also interesting, you know, along those lines, just to see that that people have started to back away from masks and social distancing. And when I go to the store now, um, hardly anybody's wearing a mask anymore, like at the grocery store. And it was that happened quick over a series of, of maybe three weeks. Um, you know, when uh, when the governor um, re released everybody from, you know, from the from the tight controls and, and all of a sudden people just kind of uh, came out maskless. It's also interesting. I feel like it, like you're getting into the whole mask etiquette now thing. And I feel like, you know, I, I don't know, this, this sort of my sort of tendency is if I walk into a store and the employees are wearing masks, I'll put a mask on. It's it's weird. But if they're not, then I'm it's right. it's kind of funny. Like I would have never thought this through beforehand, but I just wonder, am I the only one that does that? No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. It's in my pocket and I'm, and I'm taking a look around, taking a quick look around. And, you know, I don't want to, um, the, the, I think the first time that I didn't wear a mask in, into the grocery store, people were just looking at me and I could see the, the anger in their faces. So I put the mask on and I didn't want to, you know, I, I want to be, you know, I want to do what's right. But then if, if I'm the only one wearing a mask, then, then I don't know. Um, it makes me wonder, you know, having traveled extensively and seeing a lot of, particularly, I think, Japanese tourists who wear masks when they're traveling, I wonder if that's the same thing. Like, it's gotten to be so ingrained that it's, it's considered weird and impolite to walk into any public place without a mask, you know, even pre-pandemic and, and some of those. Well, you know, it, it's funny because I thought that was going to be me as, as we were still going through it. I'm like, I'm just going to wear a mask forever, you know, because this is a good thing. I'm, you know, nobody's getting colds. Everybody's protected and all that. And then it, it just my attitude changed pretty quickly, and and it was like I'm gonna take this darn thing off and uh, rebel and be free. <laughs> I still mask up in grocery stores. Uh, you know what's interesting though is because our rate of vaccination is is as high as it is in Southampton and East Hampton towns, you can go maskless fairly comfortably since most people are vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, you certainly should be wearing a mask under every circumstance, but vaccinated people can pretty comfortably uh, go back to normal life without a mask. I think I still mask up in grocery stores and things like that. Just uh, it's, uh, Bill, I think you touched on it. It's more of a statement than anything. I just I, I would rather be extra careful in those circumstances, but I, but folks in Riverhead um, aren't there yet. Um, they, they aren't at that vaccination level where that's safe. And I'll tell you with the Delta variant spreading as quickly as it is, yeah. that's a, that's a scary thing. It could lead that. I don't think, I think the South Fork may have gotten its vaccination numbers up to a point where it's fairly protected I'm not sure that's true of the entire East End, and, and you could see a resurgence, which is scary. Uh, it's a scary time right now if you're not vaccinated. So, Georgie, I'm curious, what's the story like for uh, for Charlie, your little guy who's um, going into, he's in second grade, right? Yeah, what are they saying about vaccinations for little guys like that? 
So it hasn't been approved um, for children under the age of 12. My 12 year old has been vaccinated and she actually heads to sleepaway camp um, for a week next week. And I'm so pumped that she's vaccinated and like that most of the camp is gonna be vaccinated, it's great. Um, but um, yeah, Charlie is not vaccinated and does not have the opportunity to be vaccinated. So, you know, he, he's very cautious um, in general. Um, we went to a graduation party that was outdoors at um, my aunt and uncle's house last weekend and or two weekends ago and we got out of the car and he was like, should I be wearing my mask? And I said, it's okay, we're gonna be outside. And he was like, but mom, we're supposed to wear masks. And we're not, you know, so- Good for him. He is, he's very cautious. And, you know, it's interesting. There was that narrative that developed like free our children from masks. Like they're suffocating, they're suffering. I can speak firsthand. My son did not suffer for a second wearing a mask. I'd have to remind him to take it off after eight hours at school. Um, he was just fine, but um, yeah, so he does Go to a summer camp and whenever they're indoors or they're not able to um you know be distanced outside he has a mask with him and he wears it and he has no problem with that um and that's just kind of the way it is i wouldn't bring him into a grocery store um you know when we go out to dinner with him we we do try to pick locations where we're sitting outside but i feel less concerned about that with the news that michael reported a few weeks back about these vaccination rates you know because it's so high just the likelihood of him being even around anybody carrying covid is really really slim and tiny so um you know that definitely gives me a comfort level you haven't heard anything about when they might allow vaccinations for under 12. No, I mean, I'll, I'll be signing him up right away as soon as he's eligible, um, you know, because it'll it'll be kind of like that last deep breath. I know when our daughter got her vaccination, it was really emotional. You know, we had been vaccinated for a few months by the time she was eligible. And I mean, I cried in the parking lot because I was just so relieved yeah. that she had that extra layer of protection, you know? I have the national numbers here as of July 1st, so it's a little out of date. Uh, but as of July 1st, the United States was 55% of the population with, with at least one dose and 47% of the population fully vaccinated. And as, as you mentioned, because kids are ineligible, you know, there's a lot of people missing from this data just because uh, they're under 12. Uh, and the other thing that I noticed that is just going to be a problem forever is that the same people who tend to be anti getting the vaccine under any circumstances are also most of the time the people who believe that masks don't work. So the people who need masks the most are the same people who <laughs> will refuse to wear masks out in public. So the, the honor system that we are on in New York right now that says wear your mask indoors in public if you haven't been vaccinated, that honor system is just immediately broken because the people who were only wearing masks because they were forced to and they don't believe in them, they're not gonna keep their masks on the second that they're told that they don't have to. And they're the ones that may like spread the Delta variant to the point where it stops working against the vaccination that everybody else has, which would be a real shame. Do we think we're stuck with, with these numbers as they are now? I mean, I think pretty much anybody who wants a vaccination either has had it or 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 it's available. I, I don't I don't know that Joe, you disagree? I don't think that's completely true. I don't think that's completely true. I think we we 
live in a very unique area as far as that goes. There are a lot of states and a lot of communities in those states that are still having trouble getting vaccines out yeah. to people. And there, I, I had just read an article the other day that there is still a fairly sizable population in parts of the country that wants the vaccine and still hasn't been able mm. to get it. So I, I, think, I think sometimes where we live influences the way we see the way this is unfolding um, across the nation. And I don't think it's unfolding equally everywhere. Obviously, if the South Fork numbers are so high and they're not as high in other places, then, then there's some, some difference there. And I also think some of that may be attributable to there was a real concerted, united push by local officials to encourage people to get vaccinated, to make it available, to make it easy. I mean, you saw every level do that here. I don't think that's true in some parts of the country. There are pockets of the country where anti-vaccination and anti-mask is the prevalent attitude, including in local government. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think back to when um, the pods, the smaller vaccination pods started up. And I feel like that really got so many people in to get vaccinated, not only just because it spread out um, geographically where you could get your vaccination, like you weren't driving to New Paltz. That was my first appointment was originally gonna be in New Paltz. I didn't get it in New Paltz, but, um, but also because people didn't really wanna go to those large scale vaccination sites and they felt more comfortable going to the smaller sites. I know in East Hampton, the town supervisor, Peter Vinskoyak, at the first pod was literally on the phone at like 11.48 at night, calling everybody he could at that point to get in so that they didn't waste a single dose that night. And they didn't. They used every single dose that night. And that kind of level of involvement, you know, I think that that definitely plays into why we have such a high vaccination rate up here. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. So, Brendan, I wanted to ask you what you were uh, interested in addressing this week. Well, Annette, I wanted to speak about the Purist Concert Homestead. The Southampton African American Museum is on a mission to rebuild the concert house right where it originally stood, and they also want to add a visitor center. Now, this piece of property was owned by uh, a couple who got permission after actually suing the village and coming to a settlement, they had permission to tear down the original concert house, which was not protected from something like that happening. So under the agreement that was struck, the Southampton African American Museum could actually save the historic pieces of this house with the intention of later putting it back up. Well, 
that piece of property ended up being acquired by the Southampton Town Community Preservation Fund. So that meant that this house that they saved wouldn't be reconstructed elsewhere. It would actually be reconstructed where it originally stood. The reason why this is so important uh, to Southampton at large and to the Southampton African American Museum specifically is that Concer was a kind of this monumental historic figure who has been underappreciated. He was a man who was uh, well, I could read it to you right off of the sign that's posted at the homestead. Born indentured, sold into slavery, gained freedom, legendary whaler, prominent resident, devout Christian philanthropist. And that was dedicated in 2015. So this property is across from Lake Agawam, across the street from Lake Agawam, and Concer actually ran a ferry to take people across. And that's what he was known for locally. But he was also on this ship that saved a bunch of stranded, shipwrecked Japanese soldiers and returned them to Japan. And he was one of the first, if not the first, African Americans in Japan. Japan actually has has a has a memorial to him, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well there's the thinking is that that's part of the reason it was uh, the Manhattan was the ship. It was out of Sag Harbor. And one of the thinking was that, that at that point, Japan was such a closed society, they normally would have said, no, you can keep those, those sailors. We're not, we don't want them back because you're not coming in here. It was so closed. But from what I had heard, the rumor was that because he had dark skin and they had never seen that, they were intrigued and, and allowed them to come into the harbor, um, whereas they had never really let a Western ship come in before. Yes, it, it really is an amazing story. And it is it was something that was you know kind of ignored and unknown until, you know, uh, maybe 10 years ago or so, it became more widely known, though, of course, there are local people uh, who knew about it for much longer. Uh, unfortunately, the push to preserve his property uh, was unsuccessful until after the house was taken down. It got landmarked only recently. And now putting this house back where it once stood is to right a wrong. And it is also intended to become a museum facility. Now, what they want the house to be is as close to what it had been originally as possible. So if you're going to build a museum there, you can't have a museum that doesn't have, you know, uh, ADA compliant restrooms. You can't have a museum that doesn't have air conditioning. You need these modern amenities. And they also want to put out artifacts that people could view. So the idea is to take this piece of property, which is rather large, and to also put a 4,000 square foot visitor center on the property. Uh, they're also planning on having some benches outdoors for, for reflection. And at this recent meeting of the Southampton Village Zoning Board of Appeals, it was mentioned that uh, they didn't want people to call it an amphitheater because that is not what they're trying to have. They're expecting to have a few benches for people to sit and reflect. They're not trying to have this very big impactful thing. Uh, there are some challenges to approval. One is that they are only planning six parking spaces on the site, uh, whereas if they were to actually conform with what zoning requires, they would need 53. So they need the Zoning Board of Appeals to waive that. This other thing that became a point of contention though is whether the museum's charter allows this or not. Uh, there was a ZBA member had asked 
to view the documents that the Southampton African American Museum had submitted to the state to become a chartered museum recognized by the state. And they did not want to have to turn this over because they felt it was outside of the zoning boards of appeals purview. So Sarah Katz, the preservation director of Preservation Long Island, which has been involved in the efforts to preserve the concert property for a number of years, she told the board that it's not in their purview to re-examine charters for an organization. And of course, the attorney for the Southampton African American Museum agreed. And they were told by a ZBA member, Susan Stevenson, well, if you want to argue, that's fine. I'll consider the file incomplete. So you have applicants who feel that it's unfair to be put through this ringer, considering whether their museum is a museum or not. The chairman of the ZBA, Mark Greenwald, pointed out that it's not that they were doubting that he was a museum, but they wanted to know if the extent of the plans was going to push them over the edge from being in the museum category, which is an approved use in a residential area, into another category, such as philanthropic fraternal organizations, social or educational institutions, an office, a meeting room, a nonprofit, and then they'd be, be required to have three acres for zoning, and then they would need to ask for an even bigger variance to try to put a visitor center on this piece of property. And of course, um, the Southampton African American Museum, they came out and they said, we're not a philanthropic organization, we're not a fraternal order, uh, please don't put us in that category because that's not fitting to what we are, what we have planning. And it actually came to the point where Brenda Simmons, who is the director and the co-founder of the Southampton African American Museum, uh, told the ZBA that you know she was struggling not to break down during that meeting. And she told the ZBA, we have no hidden agenda. And she said it makes her feel very sad that they've been going back and forth on this. And it also saddens her that Concert has been struggling to have this posthumous recognition for years. And now they're hitting yet another roadblock. And it seems like there's really no reason for that roadblock to be in their way. Yeah, it's interesting to me, Brendan. I, I haven't had a chance to even talk to you about that story, but the argument the ZBA is making seems to be that they're concerned about setting a precedent that says, okay, so you have the concert house on that site on Lake Agawam, but now you want to build a 4,000 square foot visitor center on the same property. In a, in a, in a residential neighborhood. In a residential neighborhood, that it would set a precedent that says, we want to build a second building that is the bigger of the two and becomes the primary structure using it. But all of that seems spurious to me, considering it's a museum. And that that doesn't really set to me. I mean, I'm not a I'm certainly not an expert in any of that, but it doesn't seem to set a precedent that could be um, exploited by somebody who, say, wants to do that with a house and build a second house on their property. I don't think it opens that door. Uh, would you agree? So the, the person who actually raised the prospect that some other neighbor is going to say, well, if the concert house was the, uh, was the primary principal structure on this property, and then you come in and say, I'm going to build a 4,000 square foot structure, and I'm, and I'm going to make my little house uh, an accessory structure, right? The lawyer for the neighbors who were opposed to the visitor center, they're not opposed to rebuilding the concert house, they said we're strictly opposed to the visitor center. That attorney said, well, what's to stop someone else in the village from saying, well, I want to keep my cottage and turn it into an accessory structure and build a 4,000 square foot house. So 
it wasn't the board saying we don't want to set this president for that reason. It was actually the attorney for the neighbors saying don't send the president for this reason. Be afraid of this. I see. From the ZBA meetings that I have covered uh, over the pandemic in Sag Harbor and in Southampton and going back years to covering Southampton Village, my understanding is that a precedent, when it has unique circumstances, cannot be applied broadly. So what's the unique circumstance here? Well, it's a museum. So if somebody else comes in and says, you let the museum do it, you have to let me do it. I don't think that that is a precedent that's going to hold. I don't think that a court is going to say the ZBA uh, should have given everybody, every homeowner, the same opportunity that that museum had. I think that courts will make the distinction that a museum on a historic homestead is a different scenario than a homeowner who has an 1800 square foot cottage says, I want to keep my cottage and I want to build a new primary house and I want to have two houses. That was my thinking too. I don't, I don't know that, that it, it really stands as precedent in the way that the, the neighbors are arguing, but um, it's an intriguing application. And, and yeah, for Brenda Simmons, this has been just years long. Uh, she's been trying to, 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 you know, to pay tribute to, to Pierce concert in a, in a way that she feels is appropriate. And, and I think her frustration is definitely showing, no question. Well, when we say residential area, it is across the street from Agawam Park and Agawam Lake, and it is just south of the Southampton Cultural Center, Home Nature, which is a business. There's a few businesses there. I think there's actually one house, one residential property in between the Cultural Center and the concert property on Palm Lane. So it's not like you're dropping this in the middle of a neighborhood. And also concert has such a connection to Lake Agawam. So it makes sense, uh, not only that being his homestead, but uh, you know, having operated the ferry on the lake, um, it just makes a lot of sense for that reason too. Yeah, the good news is they saved that. They saved bits of the pieces of the house so that it can be reassembled. That's kind of amazing actually that it wasn't just carted away. And so that's, you know. It is a small victory. I mean, it's a shame that that we're talking about, um, you know, the need to preserve a historic structure that was torn down, um, you know, um, but, uh, but I think that's also a complicated topic, so. Well, all right, well, thank you for that update, Brendan. And um, let's finally move over to Catherine Georgie Manu. And uh, what do you wanna talk about this week, Georgie? Be a little quick one, but I wanted to talk about a story that popped up a couple weeks back, and that was when two cross-country bicyclists came into Sag Harbor Village after doing a cross-country bike ride that started on June 1st in Seattle. This was Drew Harvey, who is a Sag Harbor native, Pearson graduate, and his friend Peyton Dwight, who's from Palo Alto, California. The two are a part of a nonprofit called the Dog Patch Bandits. And this ride raised $50,000 for that nonprofit, which is going to build outdoor fitness stations at rehabilitation and recovery centers across the United States. Drew, who's a very impressive young man, he founded this nonprofit after the death of one of his friends who was a Sag Harbor resident who died of an opioid overdose. And he was in California at the time in college in San Diego. Another friend from college from California also overdosed that year. And it inspired him and a group of other young individuals to do a cross-country bike ride to raise all this money. 
that they used to build a outdoor workout station in memory of this friend from Sag Harbor, Mike Semkis, at Pearson. It took a while to get there. And as you know, they were working on getting the approval from the school board to develop that workout station, they were also kind of refining what their nonprofit mission was, which is basically to show people through rigorous physical activity that they can have an endorphin experience and a really great physical experience that is much better than anything you're going to find using drugs or alcohol. So as a result of this latest endeavor and this $50,000, they think they'll be able to build another 10 outdoor fitness stations to join the one at Pearson. They also installed another one in Hampton Bays this year with each of those costing about $5,000 each. So just like a really nice, warm story about, you know, an individual who grew up here you know, who took this tragedy and has built what looks like is going to be a pretty successful nonprofit out of it. And I'm sorry, but riding coast to coast in one month seems awfully impressive to me. Very impressive. And they, you know, they had a, they still have a GoFundMe page up and certainly you can visit the Dogpatch Bandits website and learn more about some of the things they have done in the past. They've done, um, you know, paddles to Block Island to raise money as well. Um, everything geared towards athleticism. Um and yeah, they were, they were like, you know, giving people updates on where they were and posting pictures and, you know, and building the support around this trip, you know, that culminated and, you know, all of these donations coming in for this really good cause. So I think that locally um, and across the country, we're going to see a lot of success um, out of the Dog Patch Bandits and Drew Harvey, um, you know, he's He's pushing forward on a number of fronts, um, and I think that um, he's doing really great work. So I'm really excited to continue to follow that group as um, they push forward with new projects. Where does the name come from? Do we know? I actually can't remember. Um, the first story we did on them was um, in 2018, um, which was when he did his first cross-country bike ride after graduating from the University of San Diego. Um, so I will have to, I'll have to revisit my original story. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they, they kept a pace of 117 miles a day, um, was what they were shooting for on average, which is just wild. Well, especially cause it's been like 110 degrees wow. out West, you know, like that's kind of shocking. And so. you know, the day that they came into Sag Harbor, um, which was on the 31st of um, June, it was like, I think that was the hottest day we've had this year. <laughs> there is no 31st of June, Georgie. There's only a 30th. Oh, we have to I meant 30th of June. Sorry. <laughs> it was a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> cool. So this is fun and different. All right, everybody go out there. Be careful. Yeah. Watch it on your bikes. Wear your helmet. Be safe. No left-hand turns if you can avoid it. That's it. Only going right. You'll have to stay in your own neighborhood, but at least you'll be safe. So I got to make three right-hand turns? Is that what you're telling me? It's worth it. Trust me. You do not want to make a left-hand turn if you're not at a traffic light right now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End.
Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts. 